0: Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive.
1: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Support for this show comes from Alive Mind Cinema, devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life. At From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Stephanie Arnold. Stephanie is an Emmy-nominated and Telly Award-winning television producer who spent 27 years directing and producing music videos, infomercials, educational documentaries, and syndicated and network television shows. She's also the author of 37 Seconds, Dying Revealed Heaven's Help, a book that was published this September by Harper Collins, and an excerpt of the book will appear in Spirituality and Health magazine. Stephanie Arnold, welcome to Essential Conversations.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Our time is very short, and given the limited length of the conversation, I want to bring our listeners into the heart of your story right away. So you were pregnant with your second child and you started having visions. You call them mini movies. What can you tell us about what was happening to you?
1: So I was receiving detailed premonitions. They were visions that I was going to hemorrhage and that I was going to need a hysterectomy and that the baby was going to be fine. And I would see myself on the operating table and ultimately I would see myself dead. I could not see myself staying alive in the operating room i saw all the premonitions led to me dying
2: so when you say premonition Mm -hmm. i'm trying to get a sense of what that is and how vivid was the image that you saw
1: So the way that I describe it, because it it was difficult to describe you know, exactly what I was going through, but if I felt that I was going to hemorrhage, like I saw myself in this vision, these many movies, I felt my body lose blood. I felt it viscerally. Those visions came to life in my body. So when I saw in a vision that these organs were going to combine, I felt it in my body like a lava lamp, like two blurbs, you know, blobs, Combining together and I would get lightheaded and I'd fall off balance and each time I had these visions I would end up in the hospital having the doctors check me out having ultrasounds doing MRIs doing tests I sought out specialists. I asked for help from anyone who would listen to me
2: And this was your second child So this is not the first time going through this and you're just nervous. This is something very different
1: Correct. I mean, in your introduction, you talk about my history and my background. You have to be very solid, you know, not hysterical person to deal with heavy pressure when you're producing television or what have you. So this wasn't me being neurotic and crazy. And, you know, I'd had a baby before. I'd had a C-section before. This wasn't the fear of the unknown. This was something completely different.
2: So you knew it was something completely different and you knew it wasn't just a hysterical mom to be. But when you go to the doctors, they're not so sure. Most <laughs> no, of them aren't I, I, taking you seriously.
1: None of them did. I mean, at some point, they had to look at the numbers. Like my husband's a PhD in economics from University of Chicago. He's a very level-headed, analytical under crisis, very fluid thinker. He was an Air Force pilot. None of this made sense to him. He just thought maybe something was wrong with the baby. And so every time I would get checked out, everything was negative for what I feared. I ultimately went to a gynecological oncologist who specializes in high risk reproductive organ cancer. And I said, I'm going to need a hysterectomy. And my husband is looking at the people in the waiting room and they have cancer and they have IVs in their arms. And he's like, we are taking up precious time from this man and he could be saving lives. And I said, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is that I feel this is going to come true. I don't know how I'm getting these visions. I wasn't questioning how I was getting them, but I was sure that it was real and it was going to happen even if no one else believed me.
2: So is there anything in your spiritual upbringing that would lend you to give credence to these things?
1: You know, in my background, you know, I I talk about moments as a child of what I saw. You know, I I grew up as a Jew. I had religious figures in my life. You know, I, I went to parochial school. So I had a faith in God. But like I said, immediately getting these visions, I didn't immediately think this is divine intervention. I just thought, oh, my gosh. This feels so much different than a random thought that like say you're sitting on a plane and you have a random thought like, oh, this plane could crash. And then you're like, get that thought out of your head. That's not going to happen. That's a random thought versus I am feeling this is a runaway train and this is what's going to happen. So ultimately, after I was getting no help or at least I thought I had no help, I started posting on Facebook if anybody had my blood type. I wrote goodbye letters. I sent out goodbye letters. And I started saying a special protective prayer on my way to the hospital before giving birth, because if no one else could hear me, maybe God could.
2: So let me, let me back up just a little bit before we get to the hospital. Sure. You, you did go to your rabbi.
1: I did. I went to my rabbi who is an Orthodox rabbi in California. And I spoke to him and I told him that I was having certain fears. And he said, look, God helps those who help themselves. You need to think positively. You need to, you know, get negative thoughts out of your head. He didn't know one part of the story, which I didn't think about it in that moment. But when I was 19, 20, 21, I was producing Jewish educational documentaries. And at one point, the Rebbe Menachem Schneerson, who was running Lubavitch at the time, the Chabad Lubavitch in Brooklyn at this very important center, you know, we were doing a documentary on his life and, you know, apropos of nothing, he handed me a dollar and a blessing. And he had said in that moment, he had said, you will have difficulty having children, but you will have children. And look, I'm 20 years old, 21 years old. I, I think I was 22 at the time when I met him i wasn't thinking of marriage children i was like i don't know why this man is saying this to me i don't care i spent the dollar on a coke i was like forget it you're not supposed to spend his dollar Uh, yeah well okay you (laughs) don't this is how ridiculous it was and i was angry that i was getting this i'm like uh, people come to the rebbe for these blessings and i'm not even asking him about this um Years later, 19 years after that vision that he had, I can't discount that he could see the future. There was something else there, because when I explained to my rabbi what the Rebbe had seen when I was writing the book, all these things had come back to me. And he's like, Stephanie, if you would have told me that the Rebbe said that to you 19 years before, I would have shouted from the streets and the rooftop that you need help. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I didn't remember it.
2: The rabbi in California is Chaim uh-huh. Metz, if I'm Correct. not mistaken.
1: Yeah, Rabbi Metz. And, uh-huh.
2: and he sent you and Jonathan, your husband, the two of you, uh-huh. to pray at uh, the grave of Schneerson.
1: You know, my husband's a Kohen, and I don't know, we don't need to get into details about it, but he, you know, rabbi knew that I was stressed out, to say the least. I had all these tests, all the tests were negative, negative. And he had taken us to the Ohel, which is where the Rebbe is buried. And my husband had never been there before. He, I, we bought his first pair of tefillin there to say prayers. So he wrapped his arms in the, in the leather straps and he said the prayers. And at the Ohel, um, at the burial, you're told not to pray for yourself, or at least that's the way that I was taught. So I was hoping in the back of my mind, I prayed for a healthy and happy baby. And I prayed for my family and I prayed for my husband to love this child because I knew that if I was gone, that he, there might be a disconnect there. And so he, you know, I'm thinking, okay, here we are in this very powerful moment And he said he prayed that the baby would be healthy and happy because he was worried something was wrong with the baby, and that's why I was acting so crazy. But he never wanted to utter the words that he would pray for me because he didn't want to put any kind of negative energy out there that something could happen to me.
2: And did you feel anything while you were at the graves?
1: The power of the Rebbe—I've always felt. I've always felt when I met him in person, I felt that he was an incredibly spiritual human being and mentor and omnipotent being. When you walked into the room, you felt, and, and I don't know whether it, it, clairvoyance is, is not the right word for him because I think that's more shtick than if I relate clairvoyance to the Rebbe. But, um, you felt this presence. And that presence still exists when you walk into the burial ground. It's got this mysticism around it, and you just feel a presence. And from everything I've learned, which we'll continue to talk about, that spirit is still there.
2: I mean, a lot of people don't know him, and we don't really have time to go into it. But Mm -hmm. he's sort of not, I mean, not to put too fine a point, he's sort of like the Jewish Dalai Lama, (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, and people look when when he died. I mean, people do remember thousands of people in the streets and, and they believed he was the Messiah and what have you. He always claimed he never was. And he was hum- there was just a presence. This man had a presence. And I do. Be- and I don't think that that's an unfair connection. I I do believe he could be equated to the Dalai Lama. Absolutely.
2: And yet you spent his dollar on a Coke. I did. Well, anyway.
1: (laughs) Give me the guilt now. Sure.
2: Yeah, take the guilt (laughs) now. So now let's go back to the future if you want. And you're giving birth to your baby boy and you die.
1: Let me take you one step back before we go there.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive.
1: So one of the things where I had consultations and appointments and doctors and, you know, in their defense, all the tests were negative. So they just thought I was off the deep end. There was one doctor. So my gynecologist told me I should have a consultation with anesthesia. And in that consultation, that phone consult, the woman had was a fellow, a young fellow. And she said she had never heard a patient speak so clearly about what was going to happen to her, how she sought out specialists to save her life. And it had, had a baby before and had a C-section before, so it wasn't the fear of the unknown. And she said, with that phone call, she flagged my file unbeknownst to me and incorporated extra blood monitors and a crash cart in the operating room at the time of oh, delivery. That is 100% what saved my life. So somebody so, finally listened. Yes, yes. But it definitely, when I talked to her, her name is Dr. Grace Lim. When you talk to her later, she said, you know, she's a very spiritual person and she always thanks God every time she walks into a patient's room because there's a reason she's meeting that patient. It's nothing she's taught in medical school, but it's something that she is a devout believer in. And at that point, not just in that moment, but in the operating room, the day of delivery, she felt something was going to go terribly wrong.
2: And it did. So you flatlined.
1: I did. I had. I was clinically dead for 37 seconds. The crash cart that they had immediately, they used it to resuscitate me. And they put me under general anesthesia. And at that moment, what I ended up having was an amniotic fluid embolism. It's a very rare 1 in 40,000 risk. It's basically when amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream and you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases, women don't make it. So the first part is cardiac arrest, your lung shut down, what have you. And then the second part is DIC, which is your body's inability to clot. And so when you have no ability to clot, you hemorrhage and you bleed out. And my blood type is O negative, which is very rare. And because of the extra blood she ordered, they had enough blood to sustain me before they circulated more blood to bring it back in to keep me up. And I was given 60 units of blood and blood product in order to keep me alive.
2: Wow. So 37 seconds Mm -hmm. does not seem that long to people, or to me. And they know it was 37 seconds because they're monitoring this. Correct. I mean, you are aware during this. So is there a time shift? Does it feel longer?
1: So this is what I learned because, you know, it wasn't just the 37 seconds. I was put in a medically induced coma for six days. So I lost many days of my life, or at least that's what they thought. And then coming out of it, I'll go right into the spiritual stuff because, you know, six months post – I was on kidney failure, heart attack, everything. I had a lot of recovery. But when I was finally lucid enough to ask questions and tell people, I told you all so and nobody believed me, I asked everybody, how is it I knew everything three months before it happened? And I wanted answers and nobody could give me answers. So I sought out a regression specialist, a therapist to hypnotize me, take me under hypnotherapy and take me back to the moments of flatline because maybe in those moments I would get the answers I needed. And I got the answers I wanted. I was okay, just so you know, Rabbi, I was perfectly fine with saying there is nothing beyond this moment, right? You flatline, there ain't nothing, no light, sorry to tell you, sayonara, good night. I was okay with that. But on the off chance, there was something else there and there was a way to find out, I was going to research it. And so my husband was perfectly fine Crisis averted. Let's move past this. Why are you going back into the fire? Um, and I was like, no, I need to know. So in the therapy, I videotaped my therapy and in the therapy, you can actually see me go through the convulsions and, and the body remembers trauma, severe trauma. But what the therapist says is that the, the brain stores memories like a film strip in your head. And all of a sudden, everything that happened in that operating room, after I flatlined, I saw as clear as day. Now, as a scientist, you could say, sure, well, the hearing is the last to go. And mind you, you know, there was a curtain up in front of my face. So I was having a C-section. I couldn't see anything. Now I'm flatlined and now my eyes are taped shut. Now I'm intubated and they, they're getting me searched. So let's say the hearing is the last to go. There's no way I could see what I saw. And what I saw was a complete out-of-body experience, where the doctors were standing, who did what, that the first part of the crash cart didn't work but the second did, who hit the button for the code, what nurse jumped on my chest four times to do the compressions, that the anesthesiologist was down by my feet instead of my head. There were details of placement of where everybody was and what people were doing down the hall, including what my daughter was doing with the, with the blood pressure machine in a completely different room down the hall, what nurses were doing down the hall in that out of body experience. And then after that, I saw how I received the messages in the first place. So in the book, I talk about certain cravings I had that doctors had never heard of and couldn't understand why. And then all of a sudden, the minute that I flatline, the person that those cravings were related to appeared at that light, at that moment of separation. And he looked at me and as plain as day and the spirits that were around him and my grandmother and everybody that I saw in those moments In those 37 seconds, and to get back to your question, in my opinion, time stands still because you're watching everything happen. I don't know whether time, you know, just doesn't. So
2: the 37 seconds was relative to medical staff. Well, it's it's relative to what the staff is doing, but it's it's a different experience from your your perspective. I've talked to a lot of people who have had near-death experience, which is the more classical ones where there's the out-of-body, and then you go through the tunnel, and there's light, but they were all Christians, and they all saw Jesus, Hmm. and you're the first Jewish person I know (laughs) who's uh, who's had this kind of experience, Mm -hmm. so I'm sure everybody wants to know, did you see see Jesus?
1: Jesus? (laughs) I did not, but I saw hundreds of spirits, and what I told what I told people were the people that I did not know, the spirits that I did not know had specific messages for the people that were still alive on on the physical plane. And when I gave those messages to those people that are still alive, they were floored that I knew certain details because I'd never met their relatives. And so it was proof for me that the afterlife exists. Now, when you're talking 37 seconds or you're talking six days in a coma or what have you, and the the spirits that I'm seeing... I didn't take my time to look around heaven and say, "Oh, there's a there's a skyscraper there," or "Who's driving a Mercedes?" I I didn't, you know, that wasn't where my focus was. My focus was, "Okay, that's nice to see you all, but I need to get back." Um, and
2: so how and has this changed you your your understanding <laughs> of dying
1: and death? him. You know, so I'm a not, minute. yeah, <laughs> I'm not afraid of dying. It's it, I wasn't ready to go. I had a uh, uh, love of my life and a family, and I wasn't ready to go. But what I know now, irrefutable proof for me and my family and anyone who has been part of my story or around my story, is that the afterlife exists. That spirits are always around you and always around there to help. You just need to open your eyes and your ears in order to see and hear them.
2: So we we're, we are running out of time. What about advice to? You know, moms. I mean, you you, you have yeah. three children now.
1: Yes, I have a stepdaughter yeah, so, and I have two biologicals.
2: Uh, okay, so so My, you, you haven't gone through pregnancy again. No, but what would you say to moms now who are maybe having visions, premonitions?
1: So I would say more than anything else that if you sense something, say something. Because the bottom line is that. On the chance that you're wrong, you'll say, I'm sorry, I was hormonal, I was pregnant, whatever. You cannot be afraid of being judged because use my story or anybody else's story as an extreme example that I spoke to so many people and nobody listened until finally somebody stood up and listened. And they and the other thing is is on the off chance you are right, it is not worth staying quiet if it could save your life.
2: Okay, very good advice. My guest today was Stephanie Arnold. She's the author of 37 Seconds, Dying Revealed Heaven's Help. You can learn more about Stephanie at her website, stephaniearnold.net. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations.
1: Thank you so much for having me again. I appreciate it.
2: Uh, It was my pleasure. Support for this show comes from Alive Mind Cinema devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at AliveMindCinema.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit SpiritualityHealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital format, and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
0: What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my energy activation podcast,